Let's open the Word of God to Acts chapter 2. There was a movie back in the 1960s. It was redone in the last five years or so. Called The Day the Earth Stood Still. And it's all made up junk, science fiction nonsense. But there was a day, if you want to use metaphorical expressions like that, the earth stood still. And the tremendous changes that were made. And you say, well, why are you using language like that? That's a little overstated, don't you think? The day the earth stood still? Well, here's the words the Holy Ghost used. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. The day the earth stood still. It was a transcendent day in world history. That's all we're saying. Things changed religiously. Things changed in God's administration and how he was to be worshipped because of the day of Pentecost. You can read Acts chapter 2, and if you read it carefully, you will agree the pastor is not being overly dramatic. Because when I read through these 47 verses and I read through them carefully, there are so many things said of changes that took place in individual men and then in the whole worship of God and the tremendous results that came from that preaching on the day of Pentecost. I hope that because I have sent you the little outline of the chapter in the preparatory emails, that you're able to look at this chapter and see its parts. That there's the gift of the Holy Ghost in verses 1 through 21. It's the Spirit that came in the first few verses, evidenced by the gift of tongues, and then explained by Peter that they weren't drunk, but they were fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. That's the gift of the Holy Ghost, the first 21 verses. Then, verses 22 through 36, which we get to do right now, as far as we can go, it's the glorious sermon of Peter. The timid one is boldly declaring the news about Jesus Christ. He declares that Jesus is alive in the first three verses in his summary. Then he proves it from David's Psalm 16. And then he declares Jesus is not only alive, he's king at the right hand of God, and he's about to destroy his enemies. Then we have the glorious response in verses 37 through 40. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the response to preaching. Preachers don't need to hear, I like the sermon today. He doesn't care if you liked it or not. He really doesn't. He wants to hear, what should I do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Or Isaiah, here am I, send me. That's what he wants to hear, because that's what the king that he represents wants to hear. Our willingness to change our lives for him. And that's the response. Then Peter, in that glorious result, in verse 39, explained that the promise of the Holy Spirit extended not only to them, but their children, and children's children, and to Gentiles that are far off and that they should save themselves from that untoward generation and the judgment God was going to bring on it. Fourth section of the chapter is the last seven verses, 41 through 47, and that is the apostolic fellowship, the unity and joy and love these people had together, and the growth in that church by the gift of God. And so we have Acts chapter 2. We want to get right into it by first reading the summary that is in verses 22 through 24, before we go into the next verse. Peter is still preaching. He has explained on two counts 
that their gift of tongues is divine. They weren't drunk because it was 9 a.m., and this fulfilled the prophecy of Joel. Then his summary in verses 22 through 24. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man sent from God, obvious by his miracles. Verse number two, you didn't surprise God, though you were very wicked in crucifying and killing and torturing and abusing his son because it was according to the determinate counsel of God that it happened. Verse 24, God's raised him from the dead because it was impossible for his son to be holden by death because David said that he wouldn't be. And that's what comes next. And that's what it means in verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That is how true the Bible is. If the Bible says the son of David is going to rise from the dead and his flesh will rest in hope, meaning it's not going to be there long, and his soul is not, and body is not going to see corruption, it's going to happen. Right. A resurrection has to occur. That's how powerful the Bible is. If the Bible tells you to do something, you ought to do it. If it promises something along with the doing of it, the promise is going to come to pass. It's certain and sure. Can't be holding of death. And see, death to us is the most certain thing in the world, right? But it's not certain when God has said it's not going to apply to this person. Amen. And it's not going to apply to you. Does the Bible say that Jesus Christ hath abolished death? Yes. He's abolished death and the penal aspect of that. We are only going to die in this part of us to get rid of it because we don't want our flesh. Our flesh is a nuisance. It's weak. Do you know what kind of vertical jump a spirit has? Do you know what kind of vertical jump your body has? You know, we measure it in inches. It's measured in inches. I don't care if you're Michael Jordan. It's still measured in inches. But your spirit is totally different. This body, we get to get rid of it. Then we can fly around like the angels. We'll have a glorified body. Amen. The changes that are coming. Okay. He should not be holden of death for, verse 25. Let me read verse 25 through 32. For, Peter's given that beautiful summary in verses 22 through 24. Now he explains it. For, David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, 
and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Amen. Amen and amen. That's the gospel. We're not drunk. This is the fulfilling of a prophecy by Joel. Jesus is risen from the dead, no matter how cruel you were in destroying him, because David said he would rise from the dead. And just to add a little bit to that, we've seen him alive. We've eaten and drank with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have these verses proving the resurrection. The resurrection is so key, so important, so basic, so fundamental, so grand, so great, and preached every time by the apostles. It was the fundamental of the faith. Ever heard those words before? The fundamentals of the faith. Well, the resurrection's a fundamental of the faith. Jesus rose from the dead. That's different about our religion. Muhammad's still on the ground. Surprise, surprise. And his spirit doesn't have a very high vertical jump. Because it's with the rich man. And on and on we could go, and I've already done that. Okay, we want to go to Psalm 16. Let's go over to Psalm 16 and read the words that David gave 1,000 years before Christ by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come to the inductive reasoning of Peter in just a minute. Peter, the unlearned fisherman, is going to use inductive reasoning, whereby you take a collection of arguments and premises and put them all together in such a way that you can come up with one general conclusion that satisfies them all. That's inductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning is starting from a major premise and going out to the details. But Peter's going to take and collect all these details, add them up, and say there's one conclusion that satisfies them all. David told about Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead. And that fulfills Psalm 16. But here, let's look at it. Psalm 16, we want verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11 line up perfectly with Acts 2, 25 through 28. These four verses are quoted by Peter. So here we go. Psalm 16, 8. David, in the first person, speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. Did Peter ever do this? In, did David ever do this in another place? Forgive me, David. Did David do this in another psalm? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David wrote it, but David is speaking on whose behalf? Jesus. This is Jesus in the first person, though David is writing it by inspiration as a prophet. This is not David talking about Jesus. This is Jesus talking about God his Father. Don't be confused. I have set the Lord always before me. Verse 8. That is not David always having put God before him or having put Jesus before him. This is Jesus always having God before him. Pleasing God was everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence 
is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's not David. That's Jesus. David's using the first person by way of prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that we ought to follow the example of Jesus as we run our Christian race because he ran his Christian race so well because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's all right here. That's that's this right here. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, verse 8, I shall not be moved. It doesn't bother me that I'm in Pilate's judgment hall, in Herod's judgment hall, on the cross of Calvary, trying to carry my cross, though so wounded and scourged, up Golgotha. I am not moved by it, because God is before me. My purpose is to please God. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. What did he do the night before, a few hours before he was taken the Garden of Gethsemane, after the Last Supper, The last thing they did before he went out, they sang a hymn and went out. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. What's your glory? You say long hair on a woman's are glory. Well, yeah, if it's pretty. Sorry. The glory here is your tongue. It's hard to glorify God with your hair, but you can glorify God with your tongue. Because when we jump over to Acts, Peter is going to translate that a little bit for us and use the word tongue instead of the word glory. But it's just one of the places in Psalms where David describes our tongue as our glory because it's a vehicle by which we can give glory to God. Our eyes can't give glory to God. Our eyes take in the glory that he's put in the creation, but our tongue can repay it. That's why it is so important for us to get up and give thanks in this church. That's why it is important for us to sing and make melody in our heart and let it flow through our lips in praise to God by song. Because it's our glory. We can give Him glory with this thing in our mouths. That muscle that jumps around in there and forms the words and enunciates syllables, pronounces syllables so that you can hear words and understand things And we can talk about the glory of God. And we can tell him how great he is and how much we love him. My flesh also shall rest in hope, verse 9. My body is only going to be lying there resting for three days and three nights in hope because it's going to come out. What is hope in the Bible? I don't know if it's going to happen, but it might. Is that hope? Expecting something that hasn't happened yet. It's expecting something. It's waiting for something. It's not waiting with, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I sure would like it to. That is not hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is the certain expectation of something that just has not occurred yet. And so the Lord says, My flesh also shall rest in hope. My heart's glad, my tongue is singing hymns, and my flesh is not discouraged because my body's going to rise. For thou wilt... Here's the explanation. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. That's my body in the grave. I'll show it in a minute. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. I'm not going to be there long enough for my body to corrupt. Thine holy one. That's God's holy one. Thou wilt show me the path of life. When I, when I rise from the dead and am with you, you're going to show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And that's true for every child of God that will lay hold of this because Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. This is the way we should die and this is the expectation we should have of things after death. 
He's the first fruits. Can you be like this? Can you start in verse 8, make your way to verse 11? Do you think there's pleasures forevermore in heaven? The pleasures in this world are all dulled by sin. And they're still great. Do you know what's on the other side? We can't even talk about it. Paul came back and said it was not lawful for me to utter the things that I saw and heard. It's unbelievable. This world is all messed up under the bondage of corruption, yet we have a wonderful time in it. Thank you, Lord. Listen, brethren, can you read those four verses and put yourself in them to follow our great example, the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say, I have set the Lord always before me. He's all that matters. I've tried to say that already to you today. I don't care if you like my sermon. I care about someone else liking my sermon that I'm going to have to give an account for. I've set the Lord always before me, but forget me. I want you to think about you because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. He's right there. You put at your right hand the things you want to get a hold of and the things that you're used to taking. You don't put it over here. Listen, my left hand doesn't even know for sure what to do. Let's see if I can grab that. Your left hand is, well, some of you are different. Francis, I'm thinking of you. She's different in good ways. Some are left-handed, some are right-handed. But it's at your right hand because most people are right-handed. So in the Bible, it's at your right hand. That's where you put things that you're going to use often. And you want the Lord at your right hand. Because when you turn, you always turn to your, there's, there it is. Verse 8, can you say that? This is not really what Peter's preaching in Acts 2, but while we're here, I want you to think about it for yourself. I want us to follow our example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because the Lord is always before me, I'm not going to be moved by the troubles of this life, just like Brady presented to us in Psalm 23 a few minutes ago. Therefore, my heart is glad inside. My tongue is rejoicing. I'm saying happy, thankful things, and my flesh also shall rest in hope. Go ahead and drop me six feet under because I'm coming out. We're going to have a baptism in a couple of hours, and we're going to immerse those people, bury them in water, and raise them up again, declaring our faith in the coming resurrection of our bodies. You know when you die, when the righteous die, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2, when the righteous die, no one lays it to heart and understands truly what is happening. God is taking them out of the trouble of this life and putting them in bed where they can rest and be quiet. That's what it says. When the righteous die, that's what God's doing for them. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Is God going to leave us in the grave? No. Are we going to see corruption? Yes, because we want our bodies to corrupt. And we want to get our new bodies. Amen. Thou wilt show me the path of life. With the Lord Jesus Christ, we're joint heirs with him of all God has and is. And the universe, and there's, pres- there's fullness of joy there in his presence. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Back to Acts chapter 2. I hope you're... I hope you've got those four verses in your mind now. This is what Peter's referring to. Peter is the one that couldn't figure things out along with the other apostles for three and a half years. And all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 1, he is taking Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, applying it to Judas, and telling the apostles they need to, vote on, they need to pick a replacement for Judas. Acts chapter 2, he's showing that Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, is fulfilled in the gift of tongues. Now he's taking Psalm 16. What happened to Peter? The Lord happened to Peter. The Holy Ghost happened to Peter. That's how you can know 
that the modern men that say they're all full of the Holy Ghost haven't met them yet. Because when you listen to them try to explain the Bible, they mess it up like no one. Unbelievable. Like Acts chapter 2. So here we go. Verse 25. For David speaketh concerning him, and then 25, 26, 27, and 28 are Psalms 16, 8, 9, 10, and 11. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Jesus stayed focused on his Father and his Father's will, so he was never moved by his troubles. That's all we need. Peter's just laying it out. David said this about the Christ. So he's just laying the, laying the foundation up for these Jews to hear and have to make a decision. Is Jesus God's son? Is he the Messiah? We just killed him? Uh-oh. What's he going to do to us? Verse 26. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. See, there's tongue instead of glory. Telling us what glory means in Psalm 16, 9. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Jesus had a joyful heart and glad tongue, knowing God would protect even in death. Do you? Do you believe that? Will he take care of you in death? Then can your heart rejoice? Can your tongue be glad? Can you just drop that body down and say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and leave this thing behind? That's how we want to go. Verse 27, because, what's the word in Psalm 16:10? For, here you have that explained, don't you? Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Jesus knew his father would save him from death and keep him from corrupting in the grave. Verse 28, thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. It's God's countenance, it's God's presence smiling on us that fills our hearts with joy and it's the future for every one of us to be with our Father, owning the universe with Him and enjoying the pleasures He has stored up for us. Jesus knew, in this verse 28, Jesus knew the reward for His death was eternal life and eternal pleasure with God His Father. I could stop on each one of these and give them personal application to you but I do not want to take too much time doing that. In verse 25, when Jesus looked ahead to the cross, he had comfort in the certain presence of God. In John chapter 16 and verse 32, Jesus said this, John 16, 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. That is terrible. Jesus is saying this one hour before Gethsemane, three hours before Gethsemane. And shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Amen. So, Psalm 16, 8, Acts 2, 25, fulfills and shows John 16, 32. It's a great cross-reference for it. Do you know that you can keep your heart and mind in perfect peace if you'll keep your mind fixed on him? Amen. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Right. Because in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Right. And so we can do that. Verse 26. 
The tongue is man's glory because it can give glory to God by its right use, which Jesus did. Jesus rejoiced in spirit and ended the Last Supper with a hymn by his glory or by his tongue. Joyful hearts and happy singing are duties to God, and he gives us the power to do it. Romans 15, 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, and wherein you may teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making a melody in your heart unto the Lord. Where does that all come from? The power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had it. We can have it. Verse 27 in Acts chapter 2. Jesus knew he would be raised from the dead and from the grave, and his body would not corrupt there. He said, I have power to lay my, my body down, and I have power to take my life up again. God did not desert the body of Jesus and allow it to rot while his spirit was in heaven with God. Right. We should also have such hope, for he was the first fruits for us. We shall also rise to glorified bodies. Verse 28. He gave the perfect example of how to run the race of the Christian life for reward. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 that I've mentioned. We are to remember the same rewards. Eternal life and glorification with God. What's the resurrection chapter of the Bible? 1 Corinthians 15. How many verses in that chapter are about the resurrection? 57. What's the 58th verse say? Therefore, a conclusion from 57 verses about the resurrection of the body. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. I shall not be moved, remember? Unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Right. How do I know that my labor is not in vain in the Lord? With a therefore at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Because there's a whole lot more coming after this life. Amen. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But we have hope beyond this life. Amen. Therefore we can be filled with hope and be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul is writing this to a church. I, as your pastor, am addressing you as a church. This is not a ministerial seminary class. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What are you doing to serve the Lord in your life? You should always be abounding in it, even if there's not a paycheck commensurate with the effort put forth because the reward is yet to come in heaven. That's why it's at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection of the body. That's why Jesus was not moved by the things in life, because it's the things in eternity that are so much greater. Here, he didn't have a place to lay his head. He was like a fox with no place. Foxes have dens, but Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. But do you know what he has in heaven? Everything. Everything. And so he was always abounding in the work of the Lord, and that's how we ought to view life. But it's so hard to be a wife. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What in the world happened to your mind? If you're a woman that says that, it's harder to be your husband. It's so hard to be a wife. It's so hard to be a child. 
It's so hard to be an employee and go to work with that odious boss that I had. It's so hard. Life is so hard. Life is so hard. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? What about his life? What about his cross? What about the desertion of his best friends? Where were all the people that he healed to defend him when he was on trial? But he wasn't moved? Did he have a reception party when he arrived in heaven? Have you ever read Revelation 5? Was there a reception for the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Were there three choirs? Did the four beasts get into the act? Right. Did the angels sing? Amen. Did all the redeemed sing? Did the four and twenty elders sing? Did they throw down their crowns before the Lamb? Amen. Did all creation sing? Right. That's what's coming. But that is not what Peter's preaching. I'm just having too much fun thinking about the resurrection. Amen. Honestly. We're going to be able to put this to the test. Who's going to go first? Who wants to get to the front of the line and put this to the test of how we can die? Stand at the front of the line and sing about yourself how sweet to die. You know, it's easy to sit in here when someone else is up here in the box on wheels and we're singing how sweet to die, isn't it? Come, cough it up. It's easy, isn't it? But we're going to be there. And it's coming so fast. These are verses that I want you to embrace. Jesus embraced them. Was the reward equal to the pain? No. The reward far exceeded the pain. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor over everything. And I'm the one up here talking. You're the ones listening right now. But listen, when it's my time, I want you there reminding me. When it's your time, I'll be there reminding you. Let's put our trust in the Lord. Who's going to do it best? Come on, let's really have a contest. Living's too easy. Who's going to die the best? Well, second to Jesus. Well, second to Stephen. I mean, third to Stephen. I mean, fourth to Paul, Stephen, and Jesus. Right. <laughs> I mean, fifth, after David, Jesus, Stephen, and Paul. Can we prepare for it? Isn't that what a church is for? To live and die in the Lord, to live and die in the Lord Jesus Christ together. Whether we live, we're the Lord's. Whether we die, we're the Lord's. Whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. Romans 14. Uh, this is how you do it. I'd like to stop right now and go back to Psalm 16 and go through those verses again. The clock is telling me the baptism will be Monday morning. <laughs> Rejoice with me, Amen. brethren. These, these words are wonderful. Yes. The Jews didn't know what they meant. Peter didn't know what they meant until the day of Pentecost. Right. And Peter is explaining them perfectly. And he quotes them in verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. This section of quotation from Psalm 16 starts with the word for, David speaketh concerning him. Peter is putting an application on Psalm 16 they'd never heard before that David is, not, David is not the one in Psalm 16. It's Jesus that I just told you about in my three-verse summary of 22, 23, and 24. Jesus, approved of God as being on a divine mission from heaven as the Messiah, you crucified with wicked hands, but God raised him from the dead. David told us about it. Because David spoke of him when he wrote Psalm 16. Then he lays out the verses. 
I hope I've said enough to give you, to give you some joy from those verses and some confidence for your own life Amen. in those verses. Amen. Why does it use the word soul? When we look at verse, Acts chapter 2 and verse 27, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. We have a misconception about the word soul. We right. think that the soul is some nebulous thing floating. Are there any souls floating around in here? See, I see 175 souls. Right. Do you see them? How many souls came down with Jacob into Egypt? The Bible says 75 souls came down. Were they in a bag or a box? Or do they look like helium balloons? That's a misconception about the word soul. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What did he breathe into? What did he breathe in? Did he breathe in a soul? No, he did not breathe in a soul. What did he breathe into that man? A spirit. So he had dust, Spirit, and the two of them put together was a soul. When a, when a captain of a ship says, all hands on deck, what does he mean? All these are supposed to get on deck? Or is it synecdoche? Figure, that's a figure of speech in the English language for the whole body represented by the hands. And the soul represents the person. Sometimes the word soul is used. I mean... If we go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, in the same chapter, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Where, were the, where did the souls sit in the church of Jerusalem? Could you put them all in one spot if you stacked the souls on top of each other? Don't get abused in your head by the word soul. Right. It means the person. It can refer to his body part. It can refer to his spirit part. It can refer to both parts when they're together. If you go, how many, how many souls were on the ship that Paul was on sailing from Caesarea to Rome? It talks about the souls that were on them. Well, why were souls worried about a shipwreck? Souls can't be hurt by water in the way that you think about the word soul. I'm just trying to make you think about the word soul. It's talking about the grave. It's talking about death. It's talking about bodily corruption. Let me show you my favorite cross-reference, and I hope that it does for you what it does for me. Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. The spirit, the spirit is that animating, knowledgeable, passionate part of us inside that leaves at death. And so there's no longer a spirit animating our bodies. And what a difference that makes. That spirit just, it's like, it's called a ghost. He gave up the ghost, he gave up the spirit. The third person in the Trinity is called the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. Because you can't see it. But it, it, it animates me. What's the, all this, this is dust. I, yeah, there's a little bit of blood coursing around it. There's a few bones here and there. But there's a spirit in it. And as soon as when I die, that spirit leaves. And all of a sudden, I mean, those of you that have been there, you know what it's like. It's a great experience, and our children need to experience it. Touch. The difference is enormous. If, if the eyelids are still up, which is not the prettiest sight in the world, if the eyelids are still up, the windows of the soul are gone because the combination of the two has disappeared. The spirit's left. The Spirit is the part that immediately goes to be with God when we die. The Spirit is the part that God put into that dust to make it a living soul. Because when you've got a body and a spirit, you've got a soul. Now, am I plumbing the depths of body, soul, and spirit? No. 
Am I ever going to plumb the depths of body, soul, and spirit for you? No. Who is the one person that can divide between soul and spirit? The living word of God, Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I'm happy to leave it right there. If you'll just accept what I told you by how we got the first soul in the world. God scraped some dust together and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we've, here we go, Proverbs chapter 23. Let's look at a couple of verses here that use the same words. 23.13, withhold not correction from the child. Spare the rod is the little American idiom. Spare the rod, spoil the child, but hear the real words. I get written asking me. What verse has spare the rod, spoil the child, and I have to write them back? It's not in the Bible. You know, let me give you 20 verses that are in the Bible on that subject. But that one's not in the Bible. Withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Well, he could if you beat him hard enough. (laughs) Is that what the verse is teaching? That no matter how hard you beat your child, he's never going to die? No, it's not teaching that. It's teaching... Thou, if thou beatest him with the rod, he's not going to die a premature death from capital punishment, highway robbers, or other troubles because he's not following the path of righteousness. It's just why we discipline our children, why we don't withhold correction, because we want to save them from an untimely premature death. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Now, wait a minute. Thou shalt deliver his soul from hell? Well, I have seven children going straight to heaven. Amen. <laughs> if you follow what I'm right. yep. saying incorrectly. Nathan, you got it made in the shade. <laughs> if we take that to mean the spiritual part of man, separate from his body, being delivered from the lake of fire, does Proverbs 23, 14 mean that if you spank your children, you save their spirits from the lake of fire? No. no. Verse 13 tells you what it means. He's not going to die a premature death. You'll save him from hell. Because the word hell sometimes in the Bible, and more, more times than you know, means the grave or death. Do, do you understand that when you look at Acts chapter 2 and Psalm 16, If you make it the spirit part of Jesus and the lake of fire, you come up with confusion. And if you you do that same thing here, you end up with confusion. But how you don't end up is to take this passage and see how the Lord uses the word soul and hell and apply it to Acts chapter 2. Oh, deliver his person from the power of the grave. Yes. Yes. Are you with me? I don't want to take... More time showing you more examples because that's the best example. And if you write cross-references in your Bible, Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, especially verse 14, applies so well to Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. Back to Acts chapter 2. Why does it use soul? Soul is for body or person, looking at different aspects of it, and the Bible has the use of it many times, and I gave you a good one. Did Jesus go to hell for three days? Did Jesus go to hell for three days? If you, if you open your Trinity hymnal to page number 845, you have something on that page called the Apostles' Creed. No apostle ever saw it, no apostle ever imagined it, and no apostle ever wrote it. Right, man. But it's there. 
And it says that when Jesus died, he descended into hell. He descended into hell. Now, that, now that's a hell, the lake of fire, because that's what they believed, that he went down to the prison that is holding the spirits of men that have died as sinners for the last 4,000 years. That is when Jesus died, and he went down and preached to them because of a misunderstanding of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. But that's where, the, and they write it down. He descended into hell. Where did Jesus go when he died? It's all in the Bible, not in the Apostles' Creed. It's in the Bible. There's two parts to Jesus, his spirit and his body. Where did his body go? Into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and it was carried there because it had no spirit to animate or energize it. Where did his spirit go? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit in three days because I'm going to take a weekend trip to hell. No, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Uh, that's verse 43 of Luke 23. Three verses later, he said to the thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Where's paradise? Paul said when he went to the third heaven, not the third hell, Paul said when he went to the third heaven, it was called paradise. That's how we connect scripture to know what the Lord's telling us. 95% of Christians, you know, the Apostles' Creed. I'm apostolic in my faith. Jesus went to hell. Well, we, we're biblical in our faith. Because you don't even know what the Apostles believe, but what they wrote down. And they wrote down that Jesus' spirit was immediately in the presence of God. Because he gave it up. He gave up the ghost. Does it say that in the Bible? He gave up the ghost. He let the spirit go. Instead of, I don't want to die. I don't want to. No. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit is the way to die. Right. I love the word of God. Amen. Where did Jesus' spirit go? Straight in the presence of God. Where did the spirit of the thief go? Straight in the presence of God. And they were there. Do you know what kind of an embrace that was in heaven? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That man had repented, Jesus had forgiven him, and they were there in the presence of God. Can you imagine that thief? That thief had never seen what he saw in Revelation 5, had he? Wow. When those choirs burst into praise, oh, just try to imagine it. That's where we're going. It's unimaginable. It's called unspeakable. It's called unsearchable in the Bible. Why soul and hell in one verse? To see how you're going to interpret them. Those are figures of speech for his person or his body regarding death and grave. Just like the discipline of a child in Proverbs chapter 23 and other references that are in the outline that I'm not going to give you right now. In fact, we're not even going to go read the Apostles' Creed on page 845 of the Trinity Hymnal. Where is God's oath of Jesus to David? Because that oath is mentioned in verse 30. That God had sworn with an oath. That oath is in Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Psalm 110, and Jeremiah 33. God swore that Jesus would be Lord and Melchizedek because he was made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek by an oath from God. And Paul reasons from that in Hebrews chapter 7. Peter used excellent inductive reasoning in these three verses. Verses, we're done with Psalm 16 now. Do you understand its role? Peter inspired does not say you know pulls his tie down 
leans over the pulpit. I want to share with you a story. That's not how Peter preached. I want to tell you what it was like fishing with Grandpa. Oh, you mean in the Sea of Galilee for those little minnows? This is, this is preachers. They'll start a-weeping. I want to tell you a story. I just believe in my heart. I've been to the mountaintop, and I've seen a vision. And on and on they go. What does Peter do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is a man approved of God by divine miracles. According to the determinate counsel of God, you took with wicked hands and killed. He has been raised from the dead because death cannot hold him, because David said it couldn't hold him. And he quotes scripture. These men are not drunk as ye suppose, because it's 9 a.m. in the morning, and Joel said exactly what has happened, and you are witnessing what Joel said in the Bible. They quote the Bible. They quote the Bible. Are you with me? They quote the Bible. They preach the Bible. Here a little, there a little, here a little, there a little. And that is sound doctrine. And men today will not endure sound doctrine because they want a praise band and they want entertainment and they want stories and they want anecdotes and illustrations rather than thus saith the Lord. But look at Peter. And he's not done. Because he's about to get to his invitation. And his invitation is for the Lord to come. But now we have, okay, we've got Psalm 16 out of the way in verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. And so now Peter draws another intermediate conclusion. Men and brethren, verse 29. And I'm going to read three verses because this is his inductive reasoning. This is beautiful inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is taking small facts, arguments, premises, combining them and satisfying them with one conclusion. One general conclusion. Let's see if we can make one up. Joe is very rich. I see Joe playing catch with his five-year-old son in the yard. Joel lives in West Bloomfield in a $3 million home. Joe shows up at Comerica Park in Detroit about 100 days out of the year. Joe winters in Florida and is never seen in Detroit during the winter. Joe was an all-state baseball player in high school. What may we conclude about Joe? Joe plays for the Detroit Tigers and is a professional baseball player. Could I be wrong? Hardly. Okay? I'm just trying to tell you about inductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning is this. Joe is a professional baseball player for the Detroit Tigers. Therefore, he needs me as his financial advisor because he's got lots of money. See, we're, we're, we're working backward from the general premise, the major premise, that he's a professional baseball player, so he makes lots of money. And so we can work down from that. Why wouldn't he want to live in West Bloomfield? That's, never mind. Let's get back to the Bible. Did I just say I don't like illustrations? Did I just say that? The Lord just humbled me. But you know it was rare. Watch this. Men and brethren, this is beautiful. This is Peter. This is Peter. 
You know, if the Lord says, come to me, he rips his clothes off and jumps in naked. Go read about it in the last two chapters of John. The man's impetuous. He's unlearned. When he opens his mouth, the Jews know that he's never been educated, especially from Galilee. But here he goes, and it's beautiful. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Now, these are Jews that are devout men at Jerusalem to worship God, and this Galilean is about to tell them what they should know about David. And I love his boldness. And we can speak this way when we have the scriptures behind us. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead. We've got one minor premise or argument. Buried, another one. His sepulcher is with us unto this day. It's still, if you go down the street, a half a mile, six blocks, turn left, go three blocks, go right another block, there's a sepulcher of the kings, and there's one that says David, 1000 B.C. They knew where his sepulcher was. Therefore, being a prophet, number four, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit in his throne, number five, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. That is inductive reasoning. Let me tell you about David. David died. David was buried. David's sepulcher is right down the street. So we know David saw corruption. That's not said. That's understood. David saw corruption. David was a prophet. God had promised to David that he would have a son that would be the Messiah that would sit on his throne. David, being a prophet, saw all this in advance, saw this before. The word before means saw it in advance 1,000 years and wrote Psalm 16 about it. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that I'm trying to present to you right now because we have seen him and are eyewitnesses of him after his resurrection. Oh, that's powerful. The day the earth stood still. And it should stand still for you right now. What a savior we worship. This is the founder of our religion. He's the son of David, but he's the Lord of David. The Lord said unto my Lord. That's how David wrote Psalm 110. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Peter took these facts or premises and combined them. David is dead. David is buried. Therefore, David's corrupted. We know his tomb. David's body is corrupted. David was a prophet. God had promised the Messiah among his sons. Therefore, our conclusion is David prophesied of the resurrection of Christ in Psalm 16, 1,000 years before it happened. And though I'm a dumb fisherman, look, look at these, look at my, my fire. Look at the fire on top of my head. Listen to what's being preached in 15 different languages. Look at the word of God, and we have seen him alive. And there's over 500 brethren that have seen him. Right. What are you going to do? Right. Yep. Well, 3,000 said, men and brethren, what shall we do? But not yet, because he needs the invitation. Yes. And the invitation is not Jesus is trying to save you. Will you invite him into your heart? The invitation is, Jesus is coming to destroy you and make you his footstool. What do you want to do about it? Let's hit it briefly, and we'll hit it again after our break. Verses 33 through 36. This Jesus, is verse 32, hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Verse 33, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted... And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Therefore, 
being by the right hand of God exalted. Where is that conclusion being drawn from that Jesus is at the right hand of God exalted? Psalm 16. So it's from Psalm 16. Therefore, and Peter's just declaring it, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. You see it, and you hear it. You know that something supernatural, divine, because it's the wonderful works of God that have been declared, and my preaching, you know that it's from heaven. For, here he goes to scripture again. This is why we preach the way we preach. For, David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Psalm 110. That is Psalm 110, the first two verses right there, quoted by Peter. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly what makes it so assuredly, because the Bible said so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Verses 34 and 35 are Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Verse 33 Peter can draw the conclusion because he knows it's truth, because he knows it's in, implied in Psalm 16 and stated in Psalm 110. And now here's his invitation. Verse 36. Therefore, look at the therefore in verse 33. Look at the therefore in verse 36. Peter is bringing this all to a conclusion, the way that we ought to preach. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, the son of David out of Galilee of Nazareth, or Nazareth of Galilee, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You have just killed God's Christ. You have just killed the son of David that David said was his Lord. He is waiting for God to make his personal enemies his footstool. That is his invitation. Where is just as I am? That's the invitation. That's the conclusion. Does it work? Does evangelism like that work ever? Men and brethren, what shall we do? It all all came together. These men are not drunk. They are fulfilling Joel chapter 2. This Jesus, yes, he had thousands of miracles. The determinate counsel of God planned every detail of his life. He died a Roman death, not a Jewish death. The scriptures declare it. He has risen from the dead. There are eyewitnesses. Look at all of them. They're all preaching in a supernatural, by supernatural power, the wonderful works of God. They're explaining scriptures to us. He's got Psalm 16 on his side. He's got Psalm 110 on his side. The man did do miracles. Why did we crucify him? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Amen. And then we have the glorious response. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.